Intersections are the meeting of two distinct paths or roads. You all have seen them before. We have some doozies of intersections here in Dallas. You have two different roads. And those two different roads travel in two different directions. Each road distinct in the way that it was built and the way that it has traveled. But what makes two roads unique, what makes them the same, is the place they share in common. That's what an intersection really is defined as. And really, in many ways, today is an intersection. This Sunday is an intersection. Uh, We are marking the beginning of a new year on this exact day, which means behind us was a year, a year full of memories and events and occasions that we can think back and mark and remember. And yet we also stand at a place where we look forward at a year that's yet to be written, the uncertainties of what may come, what could take place. And so we are standing at an intersection of what was and what is yet to come. Luke 7, Jesus comes across three intersections, and it's not roads. He comes across the intersections of lives or peoples or hearts. Why don't you just read with me for a while? I want us to spend some time, let's let the word of God get into our hearts, and let's see Jesus intersecting with some different people, beginning in Luke 7, starting in verse 11. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said, do not weep. He came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out over all Judea and in all the surrounding district. The disciples of John reported to him about these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many people who were blind. And he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. In verse 36, it says, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the house of the Pharisees, uh, the Pharisees' house to recline with him at the table. And there's a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she, seeing Jesus, when she uh, learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisees' house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing beside him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he wouldn't know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. 
So which of them will he love more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you've judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's a remarkable chapter. A lot takes place all in a row, doesn't it? Three intersections take place, one after another after another. The first of which you see is the intersection of joy and sorrow. There were people who were coming with Jesus rejoicing because in verse 10, he had just got done healing the centurion's servant. They didn't see it, but they knew it took place. Jesus healed someone without being in the same place, the same location. And so they're coming rejoicing as they intersect a crowd who is leaving in grief because a widow's son has died. Widow's son means there's no one to provide for this woman. No man of the house to provide for her financially, economically. Joy and grief. And then after the widow's son is raised, great faith seems to be sparking in the heart of the disciples but then here come some people from John the Baptizer, and they have a question. And it's not a question in terms of intellect. It's a question in terms of concern. It's a question of doubt. John is now asking the question, are, are you really the chosen one or not? It seems like the hardships of prison and the difficulties of what he was facing now and his, and his sentence from Herod has gotten him questioning things he once declared as true. It was John who said in John 1, 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But now he's sending his own disciples saying, are, are you really him? Are you really the chosen one? And then it ends with that story where Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee. And he comes in, and this man certainly is full of himself. But then here comes this woman, and she is described in verse 37 simply as a sinner. It's all we know. We don't know her name. We don't know her occupation. We don't know her story. All we know is that she is she's a sinner. But while Simon is too busy judging this woman and judging Jesus, the woman is really busy, but she's busy serving Jesus. And so she is crying over her, over her broken state, and she's wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and anointing him with perfume. The man who invited Jesus is showing no hospitality, but the woman whose house it is not, who came simply because Jesus is there, is showing all the hospitality that Simon refused to. Simon did nothing, and yet she did. She did everything. Humility and pride. I think there's something here for us. Uh, this, this one day... This one moment in the life of Jesus, I believe, reveals a lot that I believe will be helpful for us as we consider our intersection last year to this year, our place before God, our path laying out before us. I think there's a lot that this reveals about life that can be meaningful and impactful as we continue forward. And I think the first would begin here. The intersections we reveal in, in Luke 7, they teach us about life. 
but what life truly is about. Because life is not a moment. Life is a journey. Which means life is not all of one kind or one thing or one type. Life has its evolving seasons and feelings and occasions. For instance, life is not all joy and life is not all sorrow. Life is not all pits, but nor is life all mountaintop moments. Maybe to take the language from Psalm 23, life is not all green pastures, but nor is life all the deep valleys of the shadow of death. Or maybe to take it from this occasion in Luke 7. Life is not all grief, but life is not all joy. Life is not always having the answer to every question, but nor is life always remaining unsure. Life is not always failing, but nor is life always succeeding. Life is a journey. And the challenge for all of us, we know it to be true, but the challenge for all of us is to realize in our minds we think the ideal life is a life that is free from the pits, from the bottom moments, from the trials and the hardships of life. But, but we know, we know from passages like James 1, consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, realizing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfectly complete, lacking in nothing. That the forging of our character and the strengthening of our faith, or as we see in Luke 7, at times the demonstrating of our faith or revealing of our faith, comes from those difficult, hard moments. And what we need to remember, although it's hard in that moment to remember it, Luke 7 reminds us that not all hardship lasts forever. In fact, there's really few things that last a lifetime. Most things that we face, most emotions we face, most occasions we face are a lot like the weather. Not Texas weather, because we were freezing last week and we're a little warm this week. But it's simply the reality that things come and things go. There's times we grieve and then there's times we rejoice. And the times that we are sad, we will not be sad the rest of our life. We will smile again and we will hope again. And the times that we feel so lost and confused and we don't have the answers, we're not always going to be there. There will be times that we will find certainty and clarity and truth. As the psalmist would say, for his anger is but for a moment, his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night but a shout of joy comes in the morning. What's he saying? It's not going to be forever. So what I am facing and what is, wherever it is that I am, whatever season I am facing may be now, but it doesn't mean it's going to last the rest of my life. And the greater question is not why am I facing this now? The greater question is, in light of what I am facing now, what will I become through it? In light of this grief and this pain, what will I make of this? Will this hardship, will this pain, will this sorrow drive me farther from God or will it draw me closer to him? Will the questions I have and concerns about God and his word and his people, will it be the very thing that kills my faith or will it be the very thing that prompts me to dig deeper into his word and come out with a stronger faith? Will my failures, the ways that I have broken God's heart and his law be the very thing that drives me far from him Or will it drive me to my knees, seeking his forgiveness and being closer to him? I heard it somewhere before that someone said, all sunshine makes a desert. And that's true. Sometimes we need the rain. You can't see the stars unless you go out in the darkness. And there's some lessons in life, some things we learn about God and ourselves and life itself that we can't see unless we step into those moments. And so the intersections remind us just about life, the nature of life itself. But it also reminds us about people. 
Did you notice the interesting pairings of people in Luke 7? Joy and grief. Confident faith and a questioning faith. A prideful home interrupted by a humble heart. Do you know what that shows us? It shows us in one sense that not everyone's at the same place. We need to appreciate that. That not everyone is at the same place at the same time. That each of us are at different places emotionally, situationally, even relationally with God than one another. In fact, oftentimes in the same pew on the same Sunday morning, you'll find the seven dwarves. And some of you are there today. Some are really happy and some are sleepy. Some are always grumpy. Some are sneezy, but they stay home now because of COVID. (laughs) We're not all at the same place. And what that ought to remind us then is at the heart of sympathy. Sympathy is not looking at your life through the lens of my perspective. That's what we do. I want to look at you through my life experience and determine what it is that's wrong with you and how I can help you through how I have lived. But sympathy is your hurt and my heart. In other words, I want to see life from your perspective. I want to feel what you are feeling and understand it from your perspective. And that's really the heart of Romans 12. Look at this. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Beginning verse 10. Give preference, a greater weight of time and strength and emphasis to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you and bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Do you get the emphasis If there's a scale, it is heavily weighed, and it's not with me on the bottom and you on the top, because that's what happened in Simon's house. When I have a high view of myself, I often have a low view of others. And yet, when I give preference to you and greater emphasis to you, then there's going to be the occasions when I may be rejoicing, but I see that you're weeping, and my response is not going to be continuing to rejoice, but it's going to be to weep because I've given greater emphasis to to you. Sympathy is understanding that we're not all at the same place at the same time. I want to know you. I want to care for you. I want to, I want to provide for you what it is that you need. And that's also what's illustrated through this chapter. And that is not everyone has the same needs. The grieving widow needed comfort. John the baptizer needed evidence and reassurance. The prideful Simon needed correction. And that humble, broken seeker needed grace. Not everyone needed the same thing. Paul would remind us in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, and we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. You realize then it's not always a one-size-fits-all in the way that we treat and handle one another because we all don't need the same things because we're not all at the same place. If I encourage someone who is unruly, I'm encouraging them in the wrong things. I may be prompting them to continue in their unruliness. But if I'm harsh towards someone who needs encouragement... If I convict the faint-hearted, I might cause them to give up. In our congregation, it might kind of look like this. Our young families, the young parents who have toddlers who are not getting a lot of sleep, are not at the same place as the grandparents who have already raised their children and facing different situations than they. 
Our young married couples are not at the same place as our single members. They have different things that they are facing and different things that they are going through. Our 18-year-olds are not going through the same things as our 70-year-olds. They're not at the same place. We all have different needs. And Jesus knew that. And maybe that ought to remind us also that not everyone is where we ought to be. Because in the end of the story, Jesus comes to Simon's house knowing he was not at the right place. And Simon, seeking to impress himself with Jesus, doesn't budge when the sinful woman comes in. Although Jesus allows her to serve. Allows her to do exactly what it is she intended to. But did you notice? Simon, with his prideful heart, Jesus came and Jesus sat down. And did you notice what was said there? Luke 7 and then verse 40. The woman has done all that she has done. Simon didn't budge. And the response of Jesus is, Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And the one good thing Simon said is, all right, say it. Say it. Now, how many of you can imagine Jesus came to your house and says, look, I've got something I got to say to you. I don't think so. Not today. Would we have the humble heart that says, all right, say it. Say it. Because Jesus tells a story to reveal that because he loved little, because he thought so highly of himself, he had no room not only for the grace of God, but love for anyone else. You and I don't have Jesus sitting down at the kitchen table, but we have the word of God. And when we open that word of God, not to check off a list, right? I'm going to read the Bible in a year, so I'm tick, 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 tick. I don't know what I read, but I'm reading through the Bible in the year. No, when I open the word of God, to do is what Simon said in verse 40. Say it, teacher. Speak it to me, Lord. Speak to me through your words. That's when the Hebrew writer, what he says, takes place. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the vision of the soul and the spirit. Both joint and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. There are times, and you've heard it said before, the word of God comforts those who are afflicted, but there's also times when it afflicts the comfortable. There's a danger, brethren, when we change the language of Hebrews 4 and verse 12 to say the word of God is the blunt butter knife used to smooth over all the rough edges of the soul. The word of God just comforts because he says it's sharp and it's penetrating and it pierces and it cuts deep. There are times, much like Simon, when we, we, when, he, when we need the word of God not to confirm the way that I am living, but to pierce and to penetrate the way that I'm not living, to reveal the issues and the sins in my life, to expose the weakness and to show me truth. Not everyone is where we ought to be. But the glory of this passage, the real light in this passage, in a lot of darkness, is the fact that in every intersection you see Jesus. In every place. Because as they were passing through Nain, it gives the impression that they were continuing on with Jesus. But it says in verse 13 that he saw her. The crowd was too busy rejoicing, but Jesus saw those who were weeping and who were mourning. And when John's disciples came with questions, Jesus didn't just dismiss them. He listened to the questions and he gave the proper response. And when Simon invited him, he didn't say, I don't have time for you. You don't have time for me. I obviously don't have time for you. He came to Simon's house. And he welcomed the broken woman because Jesus gave to each exactly what they needed. To the woman, he gave comfort and the resurrection of her son. To John, 
he gave answers and clear, undeniable evidence. To Simon, he gave rebuke. Sitting at the table with a hardened Pharisee face to face calling out his sin. And to the woman, he gave her salvation and grace. Your faith has made you well. Now, what I see when I look at Luke 7 and the coming and going in the midst of Jesus' life, it sort of looks a lot like Sunday morning, 9 a.m., 10 a.m., 1050 at Campbell Road. Because there's a lot of coming and a lot of going. And there are some people among us, and we are happy and we're rejoicing. We have so many good things that are going on in our lives, and we are praising God, and on our lips is praise and thankfulness to God. And yet, at the same time, there are some who are brokenhearted, and they have heavy burdens, and it's everything they can everything they can do to be here, and on their lips it is pleading for help and for grace or for forgiveness. At the same congregation are people from different backgrounds and experiences like yesterday. People whose native tongue may not be English, whose homeland may not be America. People who have come from different places, and yet the one thing that unifies us, the one thing that draws us together, is the same. It's him. What united the joyful and the sorrowful crowd is Jesus. What brought together a doubtful John and a confident crowd was Jesus. They both sought Jesus. And even though he didn't know it, what united that hard-hearted Pharisee and that humble sinner was Jesus. And so Paul would say that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there's no male, there's no female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? There's something different because of Jesus. There's something about us now as a people no more differences and distinctions. No more lines and boundaries. We are one and we are family because of him. Whereas Paul would use the language in Romans 15 that now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. That with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. One mind, one voice, one people. We are one. You might have heard the illustration before, but have you really thought it through? That without Jesus, so many of us wouldn't know one another. We wouldn't have relationships with one another. We might not have met our spouses. All the relationships that we love and hold dear, we wouldn't have were it not for him. One of the things I love about yesterday is that I came out. It wasn't just that Morena was hugging on her grandson, calling him brother. But she pulled in and she sang that song to me. That we are family and we have served the Lord. And she's right. She's right. There's a family far and wide of people you and I have never met, but we will one day. Where there's no distinctions, no nationalities, no flags that are flown except for the banner of the cross, because that is what's going to unite us. And so even today, however it is we came into this building, the one thing and the one reason we're here is the same. It's just we're here for him. We're here to see Jesus. I read about it that in 1525, 1525, there's this map that is now housed in a museum in London. And it's a map that details some of the sea lands around the North American border and goes out even farther stretched, some of which had been explored and, and others which had not. 
And the cartographer who, who was writing on the map outlined what they had seen and put destinations and, and compass markers, but on the areas which man had not explored and the boundaries over in the margins, he wrote the words, here be giants, here be fiery serpents, here be dragons. Sometime in the 1800s, there's a man named John Franklin who acclaimed that map. And upon reading it, took his own pen. And he scratched out each of those titles and in its place simply put, here be God. What's yet to come in 2023? Is there going to be joy? Is there going to be sorrow? Is it going to be a year of confident faith? Is it going to be a year of questions and doubts? Is it going to be a year where we draw near to God? Is it going to be a year that has failures? Likely it's going to have all those. The reality is we'll probably face each one of those seasons. Which is why if we're going to be anything this new year, and if we're going to set any goal, it must be this. Wherever I go and whatever I face, I must evermore draw closer to Jesus. In every season and in every trial, I need him evermore. Isn't that the heart of the song? I need thee every hour. In joy or in pain, come quickly or abide, or life is vain. Whatever is yet the faces for this new year, good brethren, make it a year we intersect and draw closer to Jesus. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.